Good morning. We mark the day when Americans signed the Declaration of Independence. The NPR staff read its key words and the words of other Americans who claimed its promise of equality. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Russia says it intercepted at least five drones near Moscow today. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. The Kremlin is blaming Ukraine for the attempted attack, calling it an act of terrorism. Will Russia respond? We'll also talk to a sociology professor about how U.S. colleges and universities can maintain and increase their diversity on campus following last week's Supreme Court ruling on race-based admissions. It's Tuesday, July 4th. Rapper Austin Richard Post, better known as Post Malone, turns 28 today. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Russia is blaming Ukraine for a series of drone attacks on Moscow today. NPR's Charles Maine says no injuries were reported, but the drones did cause disruptions at a major airport. Russia's defense ministry says its air defenses shot down four drones and another crashed in the outskirts of the city after the drone signal was jammed. Yet air traffic was restricted at Moscow's Nukova airport for several hours, with incoming international flights diverted. Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova accused Ukraine of deliberately targeting commercial air facilities in what she called a terrorist act against civilian targets. There was no immediate comment from Ukraine on the incident. Drone attacks inside Russia have become a common occurrence in recent months, including an attack on the Kremlin in May, after which President Vladimir Putin promised to beef up the city's air defenses. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. The leaders of India, China, and Russia are meeting today for a summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Sashmita Patak reports the gathering comes just weeks after the Indian Prime Minister met with President Biden and congressional leaders during a state visit to Washington. Pakistan and a handful of Central Asian countries are also part of the group, and Iran is its newest member. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization was established in 2001 to counter Western influence in Eurasia. India is hosting Tuesday's summit as it continues to balance ties between the West and Russia-China. Russia is India's longtime partner, but New Delhi and Washington are growing closer too. India's relationship with China has been tense, with fighting breaking out sporadically over their disputed border. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Delhi. NATO has announced that it's extending Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg's contract by another year. The alliance says it wants to stick with his leadership amid the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. Stoltenberg has been the leader of NATO since 2014. Authorities in Pennsylvania say five people were shot to death in Philadelphia when an armed man began firing at people in a neighborhood. Two children were wounded. As NPR's Marie Andrusovich reports, two people have been taken into custody as investigators determine a motive for the attack. The gunman opened fire over several blocks while on foot in the southwestern part of the city at around 8.30 p.m. local time. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw says the suspect continued firing at police as they pursued him. This male was wearing a bulletproof vest with multiple magazines in the vest. He also had a scanner and an AR-style rifle and a handgun. Outlaw says the officers who apprehended the suspect showed courage and also restraint. Marie Andrusevich, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington. 
Thick smoke from Canadian wildfires continues to pour into large sections of the United States. The National Weather Service has issued air quality alerts for areas of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Parts of northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. are also under alerts. A small city in Texas has adopted new guidelines for city-sponsored events just in time for celebrations marking the 4th of July. Kaylee Hunt from member station KUT reports the revisions came after a religious organization denied an LGBTQ plus group a spot in the city's Christmas parade last year. The new guidelines require all City of Taylor events to align with the city's vision of being a, quote, vibrant, diverse, friendly, growing community. Denise Rogers says the guidelines are a welcome change. Her organization, Taylor Pride, was denied a spot last winter in the Taylor Ministerial Alliance's Christmas Parade because of plans for a drag performance. There are definitely people who think that this ordinance exist to take away religious freedoms. And that's not it at all. This ordinance is to actually be more inclusive and to protect the city. It is an ordinance that was way past due. Rogers says Taylor Pride will march in the city's 4th of July parade. I'm Kaylee Hunt in Taylor, Texas. Stocks across Asia traded mixed today with markets in China and Hong Kong posting gains. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquil.com and the Limelson Foundation. This is North Country Public Radio, six minutes past eight on this Tuesday morning, July 4th. Morning edition is supported by the Adirondack Council, celebrating both clean drinking water and safe roads by helping reduce excessive road salt, adirondackcouncil.org. And Planned Parenthood, providing confidential counseling, education, advocacy, and a 24-hour hotline through the Sexual Assault Services Program in Clinton, Essex, and Franklin counties. I'm Todd Mo. Thank you so much for listening on this Independence Day. The news team has the day off, so we're bringing you another hour of Morning Edition. And we've got a soundtrack for this 4th of July. Starting this afternoon, join host Sarah Scafidi mcguire for an Independence Day special trail mix, the 4th of July edition coming up at 3 o'clock this afternoon. And then uh, Global Village celebrates the 4th of July with a rich array of music from artists from around the world who now call America home. From American artists inspired by world sounds to some of the many great regional and ethnic uh, musicians of this country. It's a timely edition on this 4th of July with uh, of uh, Global Village with Chris Heim coming up tonight at 8 o'clock right here. Join us. Weather Service says a mix of sun and clouds on this 4th of July may be a scattered shower. Highs upper 70s, low 80s, and uh, winds light and variable. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Steven Skiff. On this Independence Day, we hear some words we have debated since the country was founded. Words that are part of our July 4th tradition. 
When in the course of human events... Since 1988, NPR staff members have read aloud the document that proclaimed the start of the United States. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America... The voices have ranged from the late Cokie Roberts to one of our newest program hosts, Saisha Roscoe, who read one of the many complaints against Britain's King George. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws. But that founding document has never been the whole story. So on this July 4th, we hear some of the ways Americans have used the Declaration since 1776. One sentence above all remains relevant. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson and other founders wrote those words, and the country has spent 247 years debating what they mean, especially the line that all men are created equal, words the founders were not exactly living by. Historian Annette Gordon-Reed wrote a book about the children Jefferson fathered with Sally Hemings, one of the people enslaved on his Virginia farm. What made Jefferson want there to be equality in the document at all? It is a document that is announcing to the world that this country is going to take its place among the powers of the earth, and they want to do so on the basis of equality. The founders asserted they were equals among nations and had a right to make their own decisions. Historian Jill Lepore says Jefferson was also repeating an idea from Enlightenment philosophers. Everyone was entitled to equal dignity. So I think, you know, it's fashionable, and I think rightly so, to indict the limits of that vision. But it is actually a radical vision in the 18th century. The notion even that all white men are equal is a radical idea. You know, I teach at Harvard College, and before the revolution, you entered a classroom or you entered commons to have your meal in the order of the social rank and wealth of your father. (laughs) Those men all lived in a highly ranked culture, And the declaration of equality is throwing that away or challenging that in a really, truly revolutionary manner. And after the revolution, Americans moved toward greater equality. Most states expanded voting rights. Some abolished slavery. A few allowed black men to vote. Jefferson's Virginia did not. And Annette Gordon-Reed says Jefferson understood the contradiction. He believed that slavery was wrong. As a young man, he had come to that conclusion. He had a plan for emancipation, but a plan for emancipation that would require black people to essentially have their own country where they would be free and would meet the United States as equals from their own country because he didn't think blacks would forgive whites for what they had done and whites would never give up their prejudices. So we would constantly be in a state of conflict. And, you know, we don't like to hear that, but we kind of have been in a state of conflict. When did people who were not included in the promise of equality begin making use of the Declaration of Independence to argue for equality? Right away. Right away. People filed freedom suits on the basis of that. I mean, they immediately saw those words as important. By 1791, people were quoting Jefferson's words back to him. Benjamin Banneker, the black naturalist and writer, sent a letter to the white founding father. This, sir, was a time in which you clearly saw into the injustice of a state of slavery and that you publicly held forth this true and invaluable doctrine. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. 
But, sir, how pitiable is it to reflect that although you were so fully convinced of the benevolence of the Father of mankind, that you should at the same time counteract his mercies in detaining by fraud and violence so numerous a part of my brethren under groaning captivity and cruel oppression. Jefferson's declaration became a tool for those denied equal treatment. In 1848, a convention of women at Seneca Falls, New York, edited the declaration to make their declaration of sentiments. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. One of the men who attended that meeting was Frederick Douglass, who had escaped from slavery. As an activist, he denounced the Constitution under which he'd been enslaved. But by the 1850s, Jill Lepore says, he changed his strategy. Douglass comes to realize the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, we're not going to win this battle by denouncing them. We we'll actually just have to say the country's principles are on our side and then demonstrate that and then push those principles to be realized. Douglas did that in an 1852 speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? I have said that the Declaration of Independence is the ring bolt to the chain of your nation's destiny. So indeed, I regard it. The principles contained in that instrument are saving principles. Stand by those principles. Be true to them on all occasions, in all places, against all foes, and at whatever cost. Supporters of slavery felt threatened by the Declaration. In the notorious Dred Scott case of 1857, the Supreme Court took it on. The Chief Justice claimed the original meaning of all men are created equal did not include black men. One year later, Senator Stephen Douglas said the same. This doctrine of Lincoln's, declaring that men are made equal by the Declaration of Independence and by divine providence, is a monstrous heresy. Okay, that's a Walt Disney World dramatization of the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858. But Senator Douglas really said that. His opponent, Abraham Lincoln, really said this. If that declaration is not the truth, let us get the statute book in which we find it and tear it out. Let us stick to it then. Let us stand firmly by it. Three years later, southern states tried to leave the Union to preserve slavery. The Confederate Vice President Alexander H. Stevens delivered what's called the Cornerstone Speech. He said Jefferson was wrong to promote equality. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. That slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. Stephen's side lost the Civil War, and the states approved three changes to the Constitution. The 14th Amendment echoed Jefferson's language. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Equality was finally written into the Constitution, and then the Supreme Court took it out. A series of rulings limited federal power to defend civil rights. Yet new groups of people pressed new claims of equality. By the 1870s, the populist farmers, the Grange movement, writes a new Declaration of Independence asserting 
freedom and independence from the tyranny of monopolies, of corporate monopolies. And in the 20th century, Americans continued to insist on the proposition from 1776. At the time of independence, the U.S. did not include native nations, which were legally separate. Listeners to past readings of the Declaration on this program know the document mentions them only in a single racist phrase. But by 1961, Native people were U.S. citizens, and some made Jefferson's language their own in the Declaration of Indian Purpose. We believe in the future of a greater America, an America which we were the first to love, where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness will be a reality. In such a future, with Indians and all other Americans cooperating. Two years later, Americans gathered at the Lincoln Memorial for the March on Washington. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. Martin Luther King said those words five years before his assassination. The San Francisco political leader Harvey Milk invoked them before he was killed in 1978. No matter how hard you try, you can never erase those words from the Declaration of Independence. He's played there in a movie by Sean Penn. Jill Lepore says it's natural that so many people call on Jefferson's words. That's where the actual idea comes from. That is the real crucible of the idea of equality, is from people who are being denied it and who are pressing those claims. Annette Gordon-Reed says the founders saw equality as a process. Jefferson had this idea as well of the next generation carrying a ball forward. And we're sort of impatient with him about that because we want him... (laughs) We wanted them to do more at that point. It would be nice if he had freed his own slaves. It'd be yes, nice, you know, saying. but the thing is, look, okay, we created a country. <laughs> we left the largest, the most powerful nation on earth and created a country. Now there are things for you to do. Many of today's debates turn on equality. What's it mean to have an equal shot at education? A Supreme Court case over using race in university admissions included arguments for equality on both sides. Other cases asked, what's it mean to have an equal chance to vote? Or how far can you push a demand for equal treatment by a business? And that's just in the last few days. Annette Gordon-Reed says Jefferson's declaration remains a guidepost. It's like a great poem. It has a meaning that transcends whatever the person may have been thinking because it is a truth and people accept it as a truth. And some people fear that and other people embrace it. But I think far more people in the country have embraced it and that that accounts for the progress that we have had up until this moment. I mean, it's never linear. It's never clear that we're always going to be going forward. But the tendency has been in that direction. And I think the Declaration has helped that along. Much more so than the Constitution. When the Constitution was drafted, Ben Franklin said it created a republic, if you can keep it. The Declaration states a purpose for that republic, which falls to later generations to keep alive. This is NPR News.
It's 8.20. You are listening to North Country Public Radio on this 4th of July. Happy 4th from all of us here at NCPR. This hour's programming is supported by Adirondack Foundation and the Adirondack Birth to Three Alliance, dedicated to providing all children the best possible start in life. AdirondackBT3.org. And Long Run Wealth, an SEC-registered investment advisor in Lake Placid, providing comprehensive wealth management, retirement, and financial planning solutions. LongRunWealth.com. I'm Todd Mouth. Thank you for listening. Uh, partly cloudy skies for this Independence Day. Highs upper 70s, low 80s. Slight chance of a rain shower. Uh, winds light and variable tomorrow. And Thursday, even warmer with mostly sunny skies. Highs in the mid-80s tomorrow and high near 90 on Thursday. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From EBSCO, weaving libraries into the web with linked data technology, designed to help make library resources more discoverable for library users, anytime, anywhere. Learn more at ebsco.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. The U.S. Supreme Court's decision to strike down affirmative action is expected to lead to declines in racial diversity at colleges and universities. That's been the case in places like California and Florida, where race-conscious admissions were banned years ago. So what can colleges do to maintain and even increase diversity in the student body? Joining me now is Natasha Wariku. She is a professor of sociology at Tufts University and author of Is Affirmative Action Fair? the myth of equity in college admissions. Good morning. Good morning. So let me start right there with the title of your book. You call equity in college admissions a myth. You pose the question how fair affirmative action is in the first place. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, you know, uh, and I, I talk in the book about how, you know, ultimately asking whether affirmative action is fair is asking the wrong question because so that centers the, the issue of, you know, is this fair, the sort of not the follow on to that, is it fair often to white students or Asian Americans? Um, and in reality, you know, affirmative action is a policy that really is about furthering the goals of higher education. And we should really be thinking about admissions not as, you know, a reward for achievement. And, you know, some people deserve to be admitted and some people don't. No one deserves this. But rather, colleges are trying to admit a student body that furthers their mission. And most colleges' missions are about contributing to our shared society. So looking towards the future rather than the past. Not what did you do, but what will you do in the future? And I conclude in the book that, you know, it's clear that racial diversity in um, elite in elite colleges so that these People can go on to become the leader, our future leaders, um, diversify our professions is really something that will benefit our entire American society for the better. Now, while last week's Supreme Court decision applies to all public and private universities and colleges in the country, only a small portion have highly selective admissions where fewer than 50% of applicants get in. Those will therefore be the most impacted. What response do you expect from those schools? 
Yeah, I mean, I, it's pretty clear that most, uh, co- you know, college leaders, admissions officers, heads of admissions really care about racial diversity for their student body because they see the benefits of diversity on their campus in terms of students' experiences on campus, in terms of what they go off and do um, in the future, again, connecting to the university goals. Um, so they're committed and they will try a lot of different things. They already are. And, you know, hopefully they will be doubling down on these efforts, you know, things like recruitment in, um, you know, underrepresented communities um, that are perhaps close to the university or, or further afield, things like pathways programs where they kind of build partnerships with, again, schools or um, communities, um, give students extra prom- students who seem like they might, with a little support, be successful at the university, give them some more support so that they can then get exposed to the campus and then hopefully matriculate in the future. And then other things like in terms of admissions, like percent plans, if you're, say, in the top 4%, 5% of your graduating class, you can, you know, these are these are things that have that have been used in the U- University of California system, University of Texas system. You, you get to automatically be admitted to one of the um, top colleges, you know, really doubling down on holistic admissions, taking much more consideration into your background. So these are a, there's a whole range of things that colleges can and I think will do are already doing and will double down on. When we're talking about these elite institutions, you know, for example, Harvard, you know, yesterday a civil rights group filed a complaint to stop legacy admissions there, which they say overwhelmingly benefits white and wealthy students. How difficult will it be to change those practices? Yeah, I mean, I think that colleges can and should end legacy admissions. That doesn't, it seems pretty clear in terms of, you know, what they are getting from those legacy admissions policies and the sort of stain on their, um, you know, this idea of fairness or even just equity that it creates, uh, to me, isn't worth it. Pretty clear. Um, but I think this idea that ending legacy admissions is going to compensate for affirmative action is wrong. Um, and we look at the data, it won't, ending that policy won't bring the numbers of underrepresented minorities back to where it was in the past. But absolutely they should. And I think they are going to think about it. I think they worry about the financial implications. That's Natasha Wariku, professor of sociology at Tufts University. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Here's a sound I've been hearing for days. It's the season of fireworks, or has been, but are fireworks fading? There's been a fresh push in recent years to use safer, cheaper, and greener drones for light shows. It's definitely a great alternative if you're worried about localized pollution that's happening when the fireworks go off and leave debris that might leave some heavy metals in the area. That's Rick Boss, the president of Sky Elements Drone Shows. Joseph Pappas, a communications and technology director at Superior Fireworks in Orange Park, Florida, also points to safety concerns. You're still handling a consumer-grade explosive device, and you need to handle that with respect and care and make sure you're following all of the directions for how to use the product safely that are on all the warning labels. The Consumer Product Safety Commission reported 11 deaths and more than 10,000 fireworks-related injuries last year in the U.S. But Bob Weaver of Nevada's Goldfield Fireworks says pollution is mostly localized, while most accidents are due to human error or natural events, such as lightning. It always becomes controversial and in the news right around this time of year. And then on July 5th, the whole issue goes away for another year. Pampas says that while drones are taking to the skies more often at big events, fireworks are still king. 
the complexity of a drone show really isn't something you can create at the consumer backyard level for most people. Drone shows are still a new phenomenon, and it's unlikely they will overtake fireworks anytime soon. In fact, oftentimes, drones and fireworks go well together. And with a price tag for a drone show starting at $15,000, we can expect many people to continue to rely on the rocket's red glare. This is NPR News. As Kabul fell to the Taliban in 2021, a teenager was separated from his family at the airport and wound up on a plane without them. It's a dark day for me because I lost my whole family. He's been here in the U.S. ever since, alone. Plus, descendants of Frederick Douglass read from one of his speeches, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? On All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us, all things considered, on this 4th of July, coming up at 5 o'clock this afternoon, right here on North Country Public Radio. Good morning. It's 8.30. Morning Edition is supported by Adirondack Land Trust, with 27,000 acres of forests, farmlands, waters, and wild places conserved since 1984. AdirondackLandTrust.org. And by Fisher, Bissett, Muldowney, and McArdle, attorneys and counselors at law with offices in Malone, Tupper Lake, and Saranac Lake. 800-941-5001.